This is Neil Preston, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. History in Five Songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Hello once again, Martin Popoff here with another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff brought to you by the good folks at Pantheon Podcast. We are pleased as always to be part of this vast and always growing Pantheon Podcast Network. We're available on Spotify, iTunes, Megaphone, and over 40 other podcast platforms. All right. So this episode is episode 112. Um, it's called Self-Produced Albums. Uh, I've recently gone on Pete Pardo's Sea of Tranquility. We had a producer's episode, so this got me thinking about this. I was actually thinking about this ahead of time, um, even before I did that, um, because of this pairing that I've always seen between um, what I'm going to pick for the fourth and fifth uh, of our examples here. And I thought, let's look for some other examples, asked a few buddies as well, came up with some. Um, I've got some honorable mentions that go kind of a different way. But uh, what I like about this episode is all five of these have a little bit of a similar uh, feel in that here are bands going for um, self-production, meaning that there's not like sort of a, a um, you know, a big producer character, either a big flamboyant character or not, but just somebody with a name, you know, here's his name. He's the producer of the album. He's our external set of ears. Um, so these are the the bands saying we can produce the record ourselves, um, you know, in in various sort of configurations. And there's all sorts of politics and there's jockeying for credit and there's financial reasons and all that kind of stuff. But all five of these examples are considered examples where, um, you know, it vague, vaguely uh, there a vague sense of dissatisfaction, either either from the fans or the bands themselves at the time or afterwards, and and reasons for self-producing are are actually kind of different here as well. But all five of these have that have that kind of feel of a vague sense of dissatisfaction. All right, um, let's start with our first one here, and we shall discuss. This is Uriah Heap with One Way or Another. All right, I can thank my good buddy Kevin Julie, uh, your I heap expert for uh, for this one. I hadn't thought of this one uh, right off the top of my head. Uh, so this is from High and Mighty, issued June first of seventy six. Uh, previously, the band had produced with uh, Jerry Braun, the label head Jerry Braun, throughout. Um, you know, we're ramping up through those classic albums, uh, going, uh, you know, uh, with. Magician's Birthday and Demons and Wizards and uh, Sweet Freedom kind of forming a trilogy, but then things slowly going downhill with uh, Wonder World and Return to Fantasy. Um, but here they kind of really go downhill uh, a little more. Um, but it is a self-produced album. Um, you know, there was the dynamic that um, 
we're kind of patting ourselves on the back for getting away from Jerry Braun uh, producing everything. Um, but, you know, as always with these, and there's going to be a theme throughout this episode, um, as always through these, there are engineers that are helping out. Uh, we've got Ashley Howe, who goes on to produce Heap. We've got Peter Gallen, John Gallen. Um, but Ken Hensley... I think I think my opinion is the guy who probably was the most enthusiastic about producing, but he was also the most enthusiastic about getting his jaw, uh, his songs uh, on the albums. And this was eventually going to cause a rift with the band, with Ken turning in so much material all the time. Um, but when you're when you're kind of taking over the reins of production, you've got a little more control over that. So Ken Ken even said that this often felt a little bit like a solo album. Um, but yeah, the band was championing the the fact that they were getting away from Jerry. Um, you know, I think I, I think John Wetton, who is involved at this point, uh, would have had uh, some say as well. Mick Box, of course, is kind of kind of a a, a boss as well. Um, but uh, but Ken kind of wrote more uh, carrying, you know, moving forward, and then uh, then eventually he's kind of bounced out of the band. Um, and he always ranked this as one of his favorites. But that but the rest of the guys not so much. I think uh, David. Byron liked this album a fair bit. Um, Mick, not so much. Um, and yeah, this is this is through a discussion with Kevin. We we kind of we you know s- sorting out kind of through Messenger what what really probably took took place here. Um, but you know, it's my assertion that Ashley Howe would have had a big part in this, and Ken Hensley as well. But the big deal is we're away from Jerry Brown. Now I I picked far and away the best song in the album. It's the first song in the album. John Wetton sings. Um, and uh, and I love I love one way or another, but pretty much nothing else on here is uh, is all that good at all. This never had much uh, in terms of uh, any sort of singles. It, it just was not an album that did really well. Interesting thing about this one: think of the front cover of this. It reminds you a little bit of Budgie Squawk, doesn't it? Um, you know the gun thing. The gun thing turned into a plane, and then the uh, and then the. Uh, the skull, uh, the bird skull added onto a plane kind of thing. Anyways, um, so there you go. That is our first one. Your eye heap thinking they could self-produce. Uh, you know, uh, honestly, I think the sound of this record is actually pretty good. Um, but I have a feeling that uh, had Jerry been involved, uh, maybe the songs wouldn't have gotten so out of control and away from uh, Heap's uh, traditional sound. All right, let's move on to track number two. Uh, take a listen to this. This is Queen with White Man. All right, so this is from A Day at the Races. Now, this record went platinum, which is pretty good, but, um, you know, uh, A Night at the Opera went triple platinum. And then the next album after this, uh, this came out December 10th, 76. The next album after this uh, went four times platinum. Of course, it had the the big hits, uh, We Are the Champions, We Will Rock You. Um, But anyways, this is definitely a situation where uh, I remember at the time that uh, one of the big narratives about this album possibly not being as well received as A Night at the Opera is no Roy Thomas Baker. So Roy Thomas Baker had been their producer from the first album all the way up through Queen 2, Sheer Heart Attack, A Night at the Opera. He's known as a big flamboyant guy, um, loves his wine, loves his cars. Uh, you know, he's as big a figure as the Queen 
guys are, you know, or certainly say, say a Freddie Mercury. So I could see those two guys having a ball together. Right. Um, but anyways, um, you know, and he's also known as a big experimenter, no expense spared. Like, you know, things cost a lot of money when Roy Thomas Baker was producing. Um, but, and that, and that's why, uh, that's why Queen got to where they were. I, I think Roy Thomas Baker could really be credited a lot with, uh, with a lot of the vocal experimentation that resulted in that big Queen sound. But, um, on this record, uh, the idea is that, uh, no, we're going to go it alone. We're going to self-produce. You wonder if that would have had a more to do with, uh, with egos and control more than thinking Roy Thomas Baker wasn't bringing anything to the table. But again, uh, we do have a, we do have a, a, a sort of silent partner secret weapon in the likes of Mike Stone. Now, Mike Stone, sadly, no longer with us, um, but he went on to be a pretty big producer himself with the likes of Journey. Um, but uh, I'm just pulling out my vinyl copy here of uh, of A Day at the Races. And we've got, uh, where did we have that credit? Uh, management recorded in England, John Deacon. Okay, yeah, that's right. So on Day at the Races, I remember seeing this. So not on the back cover. The back cover all just says, all titles composed, arranged, and performed exclusively by Queen. And then even on the gatefold, there's nothing about a production credit. And I have to go to the actual uh, record label itself where it says, produced by Queen, engineered by Mike Stone. Okay. Um, now, when you get to News of the World, um, right on the back cover, it says produced by Queen, assisted by Mike Stone. So that's kind of cool. And we know News of the World is a great sounding record. And it was, like I say, a super uh, successful record as well. But for, for a number of reasons, uh, Day at the Races, you know, being the black version of the white album with the same album cover art and the same, you know, c configuration design and even even kind of the same, um, you know, a similar mix for songs where you can match up songs from the first one to the second one. And, and you could arguably call them weak T versions of those same songs on, uh, you know, from, from Night at the Opera to A Day at the Races. There were a lot of complaints about this record uh, that maybe maybe it came out too fast, maybe it's a little bit too rough, and and I definitely remember people saying, you know, part of the problem is they're self-producing. They're, they're not making this with Roy Thomas Baker. You know, looking for some reason why they were, you know, people were vaguely unsatisfied with it. Granted, it did have your, uh, Tie Your Mother Down and Somebody to Love, you know, some of the big, huge Queen songs of all time. Um, but there you go. That certainly is one of these that fits in this idea of, you know, the results were not as good when we went to self-production. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. All right, back again here, History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff, episode 112, self-produced albums. Um, take a listen to our third selection. This is Yes with Release Release. All right, so I can thank this example uh, for uh, Tim Derling for this example, a buddy of ours who's been on our uh, Contrarians uh, video show a couple times now. Pretty cool. Um, he's done Y&T. What have we done? Y&T, Tim. Uh, Y&T, Queensryche, and Journey, I believe, right? Uh, Kansas? 
boy, maybe maybe four. I don't know. I'm not, I I can't remember which ones exactly. But uh, but thank you for uh, for being a guest on Contrarians. Um, but yes, uh, Tim brought this one up. This was another one I didn't think of off the top of my head. Um, but um, an interesting example. And and it's a little messy, unfortunately, because here's the thing. So so yes, produced with Eddie Offord, uh, who I believe is also no longer with us. Um, but anyways, um, they had produced records with Eddie Offord, and you know, again, uh, not not a super famous guy coming up, but a good uh, you know external set of ears. You know, with this band that is is full of egos, uh, everybody's you know writing, wanting to get their stuff on there, wanting to play a lot. So that's always always good to have that external guy. Um, but you know, um, tales from topographic oceans and relayers are are yes, and Eddie offered. Um, but you get to going for the one, which actually is, you know, we did an episode of Contrarians and I picked that as my favorite Yes album. That one is a self-produced album and so is Tormato. But Tormato was a little less uh, well-received. Granted, it did go platinum, uh, whereas going for the one, oddly, is only uh, gold. But um, I remember at the time, everybody did kind of complain about the so- sound of this album. It's a little frantic and mid-rangey and kind of noisy and even a little punk rock. Boy, yes, going punk rock. Hard to believe. Uh, but I actually played Release Release because I wanted to play something that was a little frantic and punk rocky. Um, but yeah, September 22nd, 78, self-produced. But again, uh, engineers, of course, uh, involved as well. Jeff Young and Nigel Luby. So you be the judge. Um I really think uh, this narrative probably would have made more sense if uh, if going for the one wasn't self-produced and Tormato uh, was. But um, but I think you've got two self-produced in a row here, but the second one certainly uh, didn't really work out. You know, it's got a little bit of that, uh, you know, um, uh, that thing that's more of an 80s thing where you say it's got a cocaine ears sound right you can hear the cocaine on it or whatever uh but you know i'm i'm not i'm not accusing them of anything it just it just really has that you know smack in the middle um you know right between the eyes mid-rangey sound not a lot of bottom end not a lot of highs just kind of kind of a little noisy and frantic and and anxiety ridden right um but yeah, strange record. Uh, you know, a lot of short songs on it, a uh, little scattered and kind of all over the place. Very, very cool, creative album. Neat album cover as well. Um, Future Times, Rejoice, Don't Kill the Whale uh, was was a little bit of a single. Arriving UFO, Circus of Heaven, really cool, mellow one on the Silent Wings of Freedom. But uh, but there you go. Uh, a little bit of a. Um, Definitely one of these where the narrative uh, was that the self-produced was not as good. Okay, moving on. Take a listen to this. This is our fourth selection, ACDC with Guns for Hire. All right, so this is from Flick of the Switch, August 15th, 83. Um, they went back to Compass Point where they had done Back in Black. But, um, you know, Mutt Lang had been involved with Highway to Hell. Um, you know, did a perfectly good job on it. Um, he's getting a little uh, anal retentive and spending a lot of time when you get to the likes of Back in Black. 
sounds great. Obviously, massive album. But then they were getting a little upset with him taking so long and being so meticulous because Mutt Lang was becoming the Mutt Lang that we would get, you know, across the likes of Pyromanian and um, Hysteria. Um, but ACDC had had enough. It just wasn't rock and roll enough for them on For Those About to Rock, uh, 1981. The album was, uh, you know... Uh, somewhat of a letdown in sales obviously uh, uh from back in black still sold amazing but it was more of a critical letdown and i think that really hit the most um so they decided you know we we want to get back to basics we want to get raw they decided to self-produce which is which is quite shocking uh but you know these guys they have a simple sound to begin with and they really care and they were really involved in that now again the big secret weapon is engineer Tony Platt on here. He did a lot of the heavy lifting on this record. Um, but uh, but but an interesting thing Tony had said, here's a quote from me, there was a genuine desire to get back to the basics with Flick of the Switch. There was a general kind of consensus that we needed to find some way of moving on a little bit. You know, the Johnny Winter version of Muddy Waters' Manish Boy, where they're all shouting in the background. Basically what Mal, Malcolm Young, had said was that he wanted to try and get that feeling of being in a room with it all happening. I don't think it really worked entirely, says Tony. Um, all right. So, uh, also, uh, there was, uh, it's also said that it was noted for its dry sound now. Okay. So, so let me just describe the sound of this record. I think it sounds pretty good, but, um, it definitely is a little more, uh, you know, uh, crowded into the mids, a little more distorted, a little more raw sounds pretty good. What I love about it. And this is my favorite album of the entire Brian era is it is so heavy and rocking and, and just a great party album. It's just, just more up-tempo and lively and seething and exciting than, than anything they did, including back in black. Um, but uh, it uh, also Angus had said uh, to Ultimate Guitar back in 83, we wanted this one as raw as possible. We wanted a natural but big sound for the guitars. We didn't want echoes and reverb going everywhere and noise eliminators and noise extractors. So that's kind of cool. Um, but no, to me, you know, I've, I've often said this is kind of like their, um, their Thin Lizzy Thunder and Lightning or their Black Sabbath Born Again. Um, but I think it's a it's a perfectly good sounding record. It never bothered me that way. I mean, it was a huge disappointment again in sales. Sales went down again. I think it only went platinum. Um, but, uh, it, you know, you could blame the heaviness and the uncompromising nature of the songs, but it is a great ACDC album for the, uh, for the headbangers, right? Um, okay, let's move on. This is our fifth selection. Take a listen to this. This is Accept with Aiming High. All right, so Accept from Russian Roulette, 1986. This is uh, the last record with Udo, so things are not going to go well after this. Um, but it's very, very much the same situation as ACDC. You know, these these two catalogs sit next to each other in your collection, right? Um, but um, they had worked with uh, Dieter Dierks, and, uh, and Dieter was also known as a perfectionist, and he really worked them hard on Metal Heart. 
Great album, pretty successful, not as successful as Balls to the Wall, and that probably left a little bit of a bad taste. Um, but beautiful, beautiful sounding record, but you could tell it's super meticulous. Obviously, Dieter's famous for working with Scorpions as well, and same sort of thing. You know, they said he just he just really worked the bands hard to get everything perfect perfect so so except had exactly the same idea um i think this is a quote from wolf but he says maybe we were trying to sort of go back to our natural and not polished except sound with that record we weren't really all that happy with the polished and clean sounding metal heart i was sort of very happy with my guitar playing on that record and very happy with my parts but i remember the whole vibe of the band was at the time that we don't want to go through this again with dieter dierks who had produced metal heart um now in this case I think the album uh, is markedly, um, you know, in comparison to the ACDC album versus versus the previous two. Uh, I really do not like the sound of the Russian Roulette record. It is really hard on the ears and harsh in the middle. There's some electronic toms and things like that. The bass drum is almost too clacky and snappy. Um, but yeah, just just really kind of a harsh mid-rangey sort of sound on this record. Uh, having said that, I love this song Aiming High and I love Man Enough to Cry and I love Monster Man. So three of my favorite Accept songs of all time are on this record. And there's a lot of other material that's pretty darn good on it as well. Um, but it was considered a bit of a dark record, not very hooky. Again, just kind of like the same as our ACDC uh, comparison. Um, but uh, but this is definitely a case of uh, self production kind of blowing up in their face again the uh the secret weapon the guy helping them produce is michael wagner he goes on to be a pretty pretty good producer big producer of his on his own um but no i don't think they really get the results on this record um you know the the previous three records even restless and wild well breaker as well actually but restless and wild sounds good and heavy and raw uh, but balls to the wall sounds good and heavy and not raw and then and then metal heart sounds absolutely amazing um but it is it is quite meticulous um so yeah i i think i think uh you know consensus definitely was that russian roulette was not as good a record as the as the previous three or even four i would say um all right so that's it a few honorable mentions wanted to mention um you know that i thought about including in this but they didn't they, they didn't fit as well deep purple with machine head is you know famously martin birch is the engineer but it is you know quote unquote a self-production we know roger glover goes on and uh, and does uh deep purple and rainbow for that matter um i thought a, a good example of a super successful one that's kind of interesting is uh is hair of the dog by nazareth great sounding record for 1975 produced by Manny Charlton you know Roger always said that that Manny always took a lot of interest he was a gearhead he had kind of a little career in radio before um, a radio uh, technician stuff um, but Manny Charlton uh, you know took over the reins very capably um, you know uh, rampant you know eh, you know whatever um, but but even Roger Glover's productions on the big hit albums Razamanaz and and um, Loud and Proud were not great sounding records. Um, I don't think he did that good a job on them. But when Manny took over, I mean, he got a killer, huge, you know, very high fidelity and powerful sound on Hair of the Dog. So there's there's self-production working out. Um, 
Rick Labonte, buddy of mine, he's also uh, a guy who's uh, who's gone on uh, Pete's show uh, and done done some great uh, great work there. Real s- smart music, Swami. Um, you know, he mentions uh, Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin. You know, I, I've obviously had thought about that one. Um, interesting one there because he, you know, even though they do have famous engineers, well, probably made famous by Led Zeppelin. You know, Jimmy really is hands on. Another interesting example. Um, you know, he brought up uh, Beach Boys pet sounds porcupine tree in absentia i wouldn't have thought of that one rainbow down to earth with roger he brought up paul mccartney um, producing wings albums thin lizzie fighting produced by phil limit uh phil Linet. um rolling stones is one i thought of including uh, because as you know i i believe it was starting with uh it's only rock and roll the glimmer twins right uh this this pseudonym for for keith and mick uh, but they always had a good uh engineers as well along the way I wanted to mention for for Deep Purple, um, so so yeah, Martin Birch, a Fireball is Martin Birch, Lou Austin, and Alan O'Duffy, um, but self-produced, right? Uh, and Machine Head is Martin Birch with uh, with Bear, uh, assistant engineer, but Martin Birch is engineering and mix. Um, technicians are uh, Nick Watterson, the Rolling Stones mobile operator, Ian Hansford, Rob Cook. Cooksey, Colin Hart, good old Colin. Um, but uh, but what else? So yeah, so uh, on its only rock and roll with the Stones, uh, you have Andy Johns and Keith Harwood. So two, you know, really really kind of famous guys. Glenn Johns, again, some of these guys are actually made famous by working with the Rolling Stones. Uh, but for Black and Blue, uh, Keith Harwood, Glenn Johns, Phil McDonald, Lou Hahn, uh, assistant engineers Jeremy G, Dave Richards. Uh, so so they had you know a bunch of guys. Um, Kiss is one that was brought up. Tim Derling brought up Kiss, and I kind of looked into it a little bit. Kind of a funny, you know, Kiss, you're always suspicious about who's kind of doing the work. But you you look at Creatures, um, we've got we've got Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley kind of taking that production credit. We didn't really talk about this, but taking the credit is a, is a, is a fraught area as well. Uh, you know, not to mention getting into the executive producer thing, which is a producer who doesn't do anything at all, uh, it, mostly. But with Kiss, you've got... Um, Asylum, uh, I believe, is Paul Stanley with Gene Simmons and Dave Whitman. Um, and uh, Animal Eyes is Paul Stanley with Gene Simmons with Michael James Jackson, who's who's kind of a famous guy. Uh, Creatures is uh, is Dave Whitman again. Um, mix, Bob Clearmountain. Uh, but yeah, so that's uh, Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, and Michael James Jackson as producers. So there's there's sort of the the three man team. Are we self producing? Whatever. A few other examples: uh, Prince, Purple Rain, Joan Jett, Bad Reputation, Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska, ZZ Top's kind of a funny one. Uh, how much work is Bill Ham really doing? How much work is Billy Gibbons really doing? How much of it is Joe Hardy? Um, you know, later on in years, he certainly was was the guy who really made those albums in the '90s sound amazing. Um, buddy of mine, Jamie Laszlo, also mentions um, Steve Wilson's "Hand Cannot Erase." Uh, he brought up some girls as well, but you know, it really is like I say, some girls. It's uh, it's you know, Glimmer, Glimmer Twins is sort of a regular thing. Um, but uh, I think that's about it. Those are all the ones I wanted to bring up. And I really liked, again, the idea that the five... Actually, I wanted to mention another thing here as well. So just in this idea of credit. So, you know, the, the Ozzy Osbourne situation, right? I've, I've got my copy of Bark at the Moon, the third third album here, produced by Osbourne, Daisley, and Norman. Um, so that's really... Max Norman is doing that one. Um, 
and then diary uh i think i think the debut actually um i don't have a copy of the debut in front of me but i think that one is basically uh you know credited to the band um but i've got a copy of diary in front of me and it says produced by max norman ozzy osbourne randy rhodes so that's kind of interesting um but again max norman amazing amazing producer he was one of the five i picked when i went on pete's show as one of my favorite producers um but he's the guy that that really should be credited for getting the amazing sound you get on these uh on these ozzy albums you know very extreme sound uh with randy kind of like overdriven and twice as loud as everybody else and kind of a almost uh like a like a reinhold Mac um, feel on Lee Kerslake's drums, I imagine, uh, I would say. Um, so yeah, th this this field, obviously, there's a lot to talk about in this field when you do get to who is taking the producer credit, not really doing the work, and then the executive producer credit. Um, but I thought all of these were kind of good for, eh, didn't quite turn out um, the way, you know, everybody kind of wanted. All right. If you like this show, want to support future episodes, please go to Kofi, rhymes with no fee, uh, dot com slash Martin Popoff. The hit that red support button, buy me a coffee or a pint. Uh, and on that front this week, I would like to thank Joe Beck at Bel Air Expediting, Andy, Black Sugar Transmission, um, Bruce Campbell, Andrew Clark, Tim Derling, David Fisher, Jeremy French, Callie Clockars, Kevin Latham, Augustin Garcia de Paredes, and Brian Paul. Um, thank you very much for your support. Uh, as you know, I don't have a Patreon. I don't do that. I don't take PayPal uh, directly either. So it is only this or nothing. Um, and martinpopoff.com for all your book needs as well. So uh, yeah, go think about this. Uh, comment at our at our fairly lively Facebook page on this idea of producers. But yeah, it's pretty interesting, this whole idea uh you know this is this is what us uh, us nerds find out when we uh when we you know comb the liner notes as they say right uh thanks again we'll see you again next time find all of our shows notes social and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts all songs can be found for purchase on itunes spotify or google play please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.